There's Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross and Dempsey is denied again. And Donovan has scored. Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA. Certainly through. Oh, it's incredible. You could not write a script like this. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crown champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. Here we are, folks, together again. It is another edition of FUVFC, the only soccer podcast you can find. Balsamo, joined here by two of my friends. The first one here, Mr. Keenan Troy. How's it going, bud? Good, Dylan, yourself. I'm just ready to get going into these Euros knockouts, man. Such a good tournament so far, ready to get to where it matters. It's going to be very exciting. We are also joined in her first episode of FUVFC by our friend Danny Perry. How's it going, Danny? It's going well. Any day that you're talking soccer, it's a good day. I'm excited to talk about the U.S. Women's National Team and that roster release and uh, some controversy in uh, the Copa. So let's see. I would have to agree any day talking soccer is a good one. And, you know, something that we mentioned in our first episode of returning to this podcast last week that you, you weren't here for, Danny, is that uh, you really notice soccer when it's not there, as mm-hmm. most of us did during the pandemic. So that is certainly a fun thing to note. But it's this is such a fun uh, Euros tournament, I would say. It's been very exciting to this point. And now we hit the knockout phase. This is going to be really exciting. Again, it's a round of, of 16. I believe this is the second or third Euro tournament that's gone to the round of 16. It used to be 12 at one point, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I very well may be mistaken. So don't take my word for it. But again, <laughs> things get going here on Saturday. Tomorrow, as you will likely be listening to this, let's go down the list of matchups on Saturday. You got Wales and Denmark. They'll be in Amsterdam also at 3 p.m. on Saturday. Italy, Austria. And Sunday, Netherlands, Czech Republic and Belgium, Portugal. Monday, you got Croatia, Spain, and France, Switzerland. That's probably going to be a good one, as we're going to talk about on Tuesday. England, Germany, in London. Oh, my, that'll be a fun one. 3 p.m., Sweden, Ukraine. That wraps up Tuesday, and that wraps up the round of 16. The quarterfinals will commence right after that. But anyways, the important thing is here, guys, this is a really loaded round of 16, and it's going to be fun. Uh, Now, I think the favorites have been kind of clear, but Keenan, I want your opinions. What do you like in this round of 16? Is there anyone that isn't being talked about that you like? Who are you, who are you looking for in the round of 16? Well, I think just on paper, you see Spain and Croatia playing. And though Croatia had that good run of form in uh, the 2018 World Cup, this Euro tournament's kind of been up and down for them. Haven't really shown that same firepower that got them all the way to the World Cup final back in 2018. But Lining up against the Spanish side, that's not the Spain of old in which they were, you know, super potent in the attack and, and had a strong potent striker like a Torres or a Villa. I think that Croatia-Spain game is going to turn some heads because all it takes is Croatia to get it going through the midfield, um, get Modric firing, get Perisic up top moving, and then, of course, Mario Mandzukic always being dangerous. And I think if Croatia can put it together against Spain, 
moving forward, I think they're a team that should be reckoned with. I mean, they'll play if we expect France to beat the Swiss, which I think a lot of people do. They'll see each other in the quarterfinals, and that'll be a good World Cup rematch, and maybe Croatia can get some revenge. So I definitely like the Croatians versus Spain there. And then kind of maybe a sleeper pick, maybe not because it's Ukraine versus Sweden and you know not two powerhouses going up against one another. But I'm going to go with the Ukrainians there. Um, just kind of a gut pick. I think Sweden's good defensively. But I also think that moving forward, I think that Ukraine's a little pacier than perhaps Sweden's ready for. And unless Sweden's able to control the ball through the midfield, I don't think their offense will have much to do as they haven't really been that potent this tournament in general. So I think watching that Croatia versus Spain game, and then even though it's kind of a dogfight between Sweden and Ukraine, I could see the Ukrainians going through. Danny, what do you think? I'm actually excited for uh, Italy uh, to play Austria. It's Austria's first ever appearance in the knockout stages of the Euros. And I'm one that says when there's an underdog, they're to be reckoned with. They're hungry. They want it. They want it more than anyone. Now, I do predict Italy to definitely take the game. I believe that Italy has been unbeaten in the last 30 games. I'm hoping that Italy does pull it off because I am a huge fan, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Austria come out really strong. They're going to play with a lot of heart. Absolutely. I would agree with both of you that, uh, you know, I really do think all eight of these uh, matchups are going to be a a lot of fun to watch. And I I don't think we're going to see any true blowouts in this round of 16, but when it comes down to it, you know, um, Austria is a team to look out for, especially against Italy. And, you know, I'd argue that Italy is, you know, uh, my last name's Balsamo myself. I, I really <laughs> Italian team personally, but also um, they do have a history at the Euros of faltering when we least expect them to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to have been a trend of theirs really for the last two or three tournaments. So my hopes are not as high on them as one might hope. Uh, but and that Austria team is 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 going to be good. I think they really impressed during the uh, the group stage. So that's going to be a very exciting game. Uh, but you know, we also mentioned uh, Sweden and Ukraine. You mentioned that particularly, Keenan. That's going to be a good matchup too. I think you know um, Sweden has been good offensively in the past, but I don't think they they are at that anymore. At least they didn't look like that during the group stage. So mm-hmm. I think this is a good time for Ukraine to really uh, uh, jump out and see things. But guys, really. And, you know, Keenan, I'll come to you first here again. When you look at, at the outlook of, of this tournament, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there are some uh, the, the clear favorites that everyone expects. You know, people talk about France constantly and, 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 you know, the drill with that. But, you know, I really do think as we get farther along in this tournament, um, the matchups are going to continue to be close. I think this, is, this is, might be the most um, tightly matched and well-matched uh, Euro tournament I remember seeing in my very, very, very long lifetime. Yeah, I think um, once, I mean, you get the Belgium versus Portugal, you get the England versus Germany, both in the round 16. So two, four, two games that are full of blue bloods. But after that saying, you know, okay, all the powerhouses that you expect to win, win their respective games in the round of 16. If you look at the quarterfinals, you've got Belgium, you got Italy, you got France, you got Spain or Croatia, take your pick. You've got Sweden or Ukraine, take your pick. You got England or Germany, take your pick. You got probably the Dutch and then the Danes who get in through goal differential and points, though finishing third in their group. So you look at these groups and you think, okay, with the exception of Italy and uh, the Netherlands, because they didn't qualify for World Cup 2018 out in Russia, 
all these teams had advanced in the World Cup to the knockout stages. So when you're looking at that, you think maybe you exclude some of the lesser known teams or the lesser respected teams. But for the most part, you've got teams within that quarterfinal stage that all you could look at on any given day and say, I would not be surprised if they won this year. So I think what's going to set, you know, the pretenders from the contenders apart is who can adapt the best throughout the game. And I think that's why so many people like France as the favorite, just because of the depth of their bench and their ability to change players almost intermittently. You see Dembele go out with a um, ankle injury and won't be able to continue the tournament. Next man up, you've got so many options coming off that bench, like Ben Yedder, um, Kingsley Coleman, for example, from Bayern. So the depths of squads, I think, are really going to be the telling sign as to who can make a deep run in this tournament. So I think that's why so many people are so high on France. But France, I would say, out of all the countries looking to win, has the toughest road to the final. Um, They'll probably play – they have to play Spain or Croatia, kind of hoping personally that it's Croatia-France for that rematch of the World Cup final. And then they either have to play, you know, out of the other side of their bracket, they either got Belgium – Portugal or Italy. So at some point in the semifinals, if they make it that far, they're running into a juggernaut and probably will be, though they pulled the group of death, is it probably be the biggest test when everything's on the line. Keenan, I agree with you there. Um, I think we really need to pay attention to Germany though. We cannot count them out of this. They are uh, a top, a top team. You know, it's, I believe the favorite is still France and Italy has, has increased while the tournament has went on and and Germany sits in that number four spot. And and I see them being a great team as always, strong, powerful, uh, unpredictable at times. I think back to Italy though, uh, I think defense wins championships. And no matter who their opponent's gonna be, they've always been a defensive-minded international soccer team. And, and that's why I think they're gonna succeed in this Euro. But again, um, my eyes are also on Germany, uh, just sliding in there and, and knocking out the top three. All excellent points you guys have made. I'm also specifically really looking forward to, to England, Germany here in this first yes. one. I believe it's on Monday. <laughs> like they're, as, as, as a history buff myself, there's just, there's just some, there's something, there's going to be something in the air. I feel like Winston Churchill should host the pregame show, but there's really. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. I haven't I haven't de- t- um, looked in detail with the brackets yet, but if there is a chance for Italy and and France to go against each other, uh, too bad uh, Zidane isn't here anymore for a headbutt because that's all I remember the last time they played. That was my memory of Italy. Um, <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, that's part of what I was just about to say because yeah. Keith brought up the point that um, France might have the uh, toughest route to winning the European Championship mm-hmm. uh, if they are to advance so far into this bracket. But I would also argue there's no team that's better equipped uh for that tough run i mean so you, you take a look at things here you know they they got they got the swiss in the first round they should probably win that game yes. after that you either have spain which is you know they may not be the spain we grew up on but they're still a tough squad or you got a world cup rematch in croatia they they, they can achieve that then after that you probably are either, either going to have the italians or the portuguese so you know, it's it, it, it's doable. It's going to be tough, like you said, Keenan, but it's absolutely going to be doable. But I also think you make a good point, Danny, not to think Germany is going to bow out of this pretty quickly. I yeah. think they're really going to make a run here. And I, I don't disagree with you that they're a team we should definitely be looking out for. But but all this aside, I want to, before we, we move on from the Euros here, and we hope, folks, that we've given you a, a sustainable <laughs> preview of this tournament. But I, I want your your 
you guys' particular picks of who wins this tournament, uh, who, who takes second place. We'll start with you, Keen. I think, personally, I think it's time for Belgium to win a Nash, uh, big European or international trophy. I think they were really good at the World Cup. They've been really good now. Daniel's talking about defense wins championship. They've had that core three defense for so long that I think it's time. And so I think they're getting through. And you know what? I think just to displease and break some more hearts, I think the English make it all the way to the cup final. Everybody <laughs> thinking it might not be coming home in terms of the World Cup, but at least something's coming home. And I think the Belgians win 3-1. And then you have riots in the street of London calling for Southgate's head. Well, Keenan, I think uh, you just brought up some great teams. I mean, England is number three in this tournament, so it's not a bad prediction there. Uh, I'm going to go with Italy to win it all. And instead of picking a, a second place, I hope you don't mind there, Dylan. I'm just going to just, I'm going to pick an underdog. If there's an underdog to win, I want to see, see Portugal. I want to see Portugal somehow work a miracle. I, it would be it would be cool to see something like that. I'm going back to back too. I mean, Ronaldo out last mm-hmm. Euro final. You put blood in the water and let him loose. I mean, good luck stopping that freak. I'm getting the chills thinking about something like that. So we'll see. It stirs up such emotions. Keenan, to your point, to think of of England fans chanting uh, is coming home for a final taking place on their home soil and to not win it. I I must say, disappointing for them, but uh, is objectively hilarious. (laughs) there's a part of me that hopes that happens i am going to take the french uh, to win this one but i think that i think that i think that germany might be that other team that they meet there in the finals that's going to be a very interesting game france versus germany and london oh man i can't wait anyway let's move on you know as we um as i think danny touched upon when we started this episode is this is such a great summer of soccer uh there's so much going on and of course uh as much as the euros were delayed last year the olympics were also delayed Yes. And now here we go. It is time for the U.S. women's national team to go to the Olympics. And the officially announced roster came out just a couple of days ago as we record this. It's an 18-woman roster, again, significantly smaller than is uh, typically known for an international tournament, but that's just Olympic rules. Mm-hmm. So you got two goalkeepers, six defenders, five midfielders, five forwards. You know, nothing – Nothing incredibly surprising. There are, Danny, a couple standouts, though. And, and I'm, I'm curious about how you feel about someone like to, uh, Tobin Heath or, or, or Julie Ertz, for example, being on this roster. What do you think? Well, yeah, I, and I'm going to get to that. But I do want to bring up an important point, and that is this is the first major tournament for the new head coach, Vladko, since Jill Ellis left. Because last year's tournament, as you mentioned, it was delayed because of the pandemic. Um, and interestingly enough, I want to question, is it is it his team or is it Jill Ellis's team? Because 11 players are returning from the 2016 Olympics and 17 players from the 2019 Women's World Cup. Our name. So it's basically, it's a very similar team to Jill Ellis's team. So, so it's a very veteran team. They all, they've been there before. Um, they know what to do when things get rough and they also know how to capitalize. Now, my, um, my two comments that I wanted to make is it's no surprise to me that Ertz was named to the 18 player roster. 
She also brings a lot of attack for us. She'll come in on corner, corner kicks and she brings height and size. And that's something that we lack. And she's the only one that has it. So I don't want to say it was a surprise that she was added to the roster. It's more so the mechanism that they're going to use to attack and bring her up. And then Tobin Heath, she's a playmaker. Of, of course, she's going to be on that roster. It's impossible to say that Tobin Heath is not on the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team Olympic roster. Yeah, and to agree with you, Danny, I think, you know, both Heath and Ertz were sidelined with injuries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Tobin Heath going down initially with an ankle injury back in January while playing at her club, Manchester United, and then kind of sustaining a small knee injury throughout her recovery on that ankle. So she hasn't seen um, high-level soccer minutes in a while, um, but I think these upcoming friendlies against Mexico, if I was Vladko, I'd get her out there, maybe not in full, but, you know, definitely like, okay, 70 minutes substitute her on just so she can get her legs back under you and then for julie ertz um you know mcl sprain uh back in may for the portland thorns opener but i think as you've touched on beautifully when you look at these two girls and you say this team is not complete without them there and mm-hmm. i think with an 18 woman roster especially at this olympics with a year being passed and you know you don't know what level you're going to get out of your competition and also yourself I think when you add those two names to a roster, not only does it provide depth if they're not going to start from the beginning of the tournament, but it also emphasizes that you're here to win. You're not going to hold somebody back in fear of them, you know, maybe re-aggravating an injury or them not being at 100% Vlaco saying, this is my team now and I'm going to continue where it was left for me. Right. I uh, I want to just add on there, you know, Ertz is actually listed on the roster as a midfielder. And with that MCL sprain, uh, you know, it, it is something that just requires rest. And I, and I think I could say confidently that no coach is going to waste a roster spot in such a limited um, pool, which only with the only 18, if they don't know that Julie Ertz is going to be good to go. I, I, I actually don't even know if I would put her in both games. So like you said, give her some minutes, sure. But I don't know if that would be more so for the fans to see or for her. Again, I really think that he would be, he's confident enough to put her on the roster for a really good reason. And, and we, don't, we don't know a lot as fans. And, you know, even if she is still recovering, I believe that the U.S. Women's National Team is strong enough to get through the group stage. Give her an extra week if she wants. Get through the group stage and then we bring her in, whether it's off the bench or starting. I think we talk about depth. We were talking about that in the Euros. You want to talk about depth? The U.S. Women's National Team has basically two starting teams, always. And that's why they're so hard to beat. They're they're truly the the Alabama football of, <laughs> of, the, of the women's national soccer world to, to... To, to Americanize this as much as possible mm-hmm. with an analogy. But, you know, specifically to Keenan's point, I, uh, you know, yeah, he mentioned uh, the, uh, the Mexico games that are coming up. Those are going to be such good ramp ups for everybody. And I think that's really going to be where we learn uh, what kind of team this, this U.S. team is, is going to be coming into the Olympics. Because, you know, something that Danny mentioned is uh, the, the question of whose team is this? You know, because a, a, changing a changing of the helms at, at head coach while maintaining most of the same players does kind of ask that question. And to me, what the real question is, is what is the factor that makes the U S women's national team as good as they are? Is it, is it head coaching in any type of sense, or is it just a system that is so good? You can really just put anybody there and you're going to win anyway. That's the real question here. And that leads me to what I think is an important point about, about this women's team heading into the Olympics, which is, you know, there's no question they're, they're going to be fighting for gold 
come the end of, of the Olympics in Tokyo. But I think the real question is, should we expect them to be just as dominant as they have been for about a gazillion years now? What do you think, Danny? I want to first of all say that I think what makes the U.S. Women's National Team who they are is they're truly a family. And you can tell if you follow them on social media, you see their interviews, they love each other on and off the field. And when you have a team, especially in soccer, that is like a family, that that carries so much more weight than any head coach in any system. They're going to fight for each other on that pitch. And that's huge. Whose team is it? I have to say, watching the games, when Carly Lloyd is not in the game, we looked uh, slow and as if we did not need to win these friendly games. Carly Lloyd jumps onto the pitch and it was almost like there was an energy change from every player. She is a veteran. I think it's it's not Rapino's team. It's not Becky Sauerbrunn's team. It is Carly Lloyd's team. Regarding, I'm sorry, Dylan, can you repeat though what you wanted me to <laughs> answer? Well, yeah, of course. I just, I just kind of threw that in at the end there. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it's it's a true argument to even ask the question of are they are they going to compete in these Olympics? Because that's just a silly question at this point. But the question is, are they going to be as good as we have known them to be? I, I hesitate to say yes, because I think that, yes, we have Alex Morgan, and I understand that the fans love her, but I think we are missing um, a lot, a lot of speed up top. You know, for instance, if you want to compare our speed to Brazil's speed, I don't think that we have that, but I don't think that's going to stop us from winning. We are so tactical and we are so precise that I think they still come away with the Olympic gold medal. It's just going to not be from fast breakaways as you would think um there is a difference from this team and it's, it is a very veteran team and that's something to remember but that carries weight in its own right right and i think going to dylan's point asking about you know does the coach really matter or is it just you know kind of like alabama in the sense going back to that analogy he made where you know nick saban's a good coach but also when you have however many d1 recruits in the in the nation you're always going to be competitive and you're always going to be probably top dog. So I think to Danny's point about maybe not being so blistering up front is going to really dictate the narrative of can this team adapt? Can this team win in a new system, in a new style, now that a new era of women's soccer in the United States is underway? So I think that something definitely to look for and also will be a good, good indication of how this team is going to progress further going forward. If they're going to try and revert back to, okay, play through the middle, send someone through and get a good, and get a good effort at goal. Or if they're going to look to build more consistently through the midfield, maybe play out wide and then get Alex Morgan, Carly mm-hmm. Lloyd or whoever is forward in, in the box to score. So I think that's something that as soccer fans and also as potential analysts look at is something to take away from this tournament is if the United States, if they're not playing those direct through balls up the middle through the channels between center backs or through the center backs and wing backs, will they be able to sustain that moving forward in the tournament? But also is this the new era of United States women's national team soccer? I mean, I think having Rapino with her crosses and then we'll have Ertz, Ertz back, you know, that's also been our game. I mean, we haven't had Abby Wambach for a while, but, you know, those crosses and heading it in or putting it in, that's been our game. And I think that that's a similarity you will still see, and it doesn't require too much speed from your forwards. So I would expect a lot of goals scored on either set pieces, free kicks. We seem to get a lot of penalty kicks as well. So yeah, that's that's how I see us scoring. But I do want to say one thing, and if anything shocked me, 
really quick, Dylan, it would be the goalkeeper situation. Alyssa Nair, I mean, she has not overly impressed me. And But more importantly, I would say Ashlyn Harris has been the backup for a very long time, and she seems to be iced out by this new head coach. And Franch got the call up, and um, I'm curious to see how Nair plays, and I just hope she stays healthy because I really don't know if it was the right call to not have Ashlyn Harris as your second goalkeeper in a tournament like this. It is an interesting question, and, you know, you know, I think at the crux of what we're really saying is here, barring Harris, there is not a ton different uh, in terms of most aspects of this mm-hmm. U.S. team coming into this Olympic squad. This is the team we've, we've watched them be for, you know, at least almost a decade now at this point. So really what it comes down to is, you know, they're going to they're gonna be the best team there offensively. It's just what it's going to be. You know, mm-hmm. d- defensively is going to be a bit of a question, and we're, and, we're, and we're going to see what the answer is there. They're bringing six defenders to the tournament. I have not looked at the other rosters. I don't know what the numbers are for uh, each of the other squads, how many defenders they're bringing, but that's going to be a real question for them. And I'm sure it's something we're going to continue to talk about more and more as this podcast rolls into the summer. But you know, we have one more topic we want to hit upon today, and that's Copa America, of course. And there's specifically one thing um, that, that we would like to talk about. I, I'm sure those of you listening, you soccer fans, have, have probably heard about this. We want to talk about what happened in, uh, in Brazil, Colombia. You know, so in this game, Brazil was up. Um, it was it was 1-0 at that point, I believe, right? Uh, right? 1-0 Colombia, right? Colombia scored on an amazing bicycle kick. Yes. yes Very early right. in the game. Mm-hmm. Yes. So later on, second half, 78th minute, it's Roberto Firmino with the ball uh, for Brazil. Uh, tries to pass it. It deflects off uh, a, re- a referee, a referee by the name of uh, Nestor Pintana. Hold on correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to out him, but I feel like people already, the people who would be upset with him, already know his name by this point. So I, uh, I think we're safe there. But anyways, ball deflects off Pintana, and you know, typically that results in a stoppage of play. Absolutely, it, it, it didn't in this situation. Uh, Pintana kind of lets it slide. All the referees let it slide. Ball gets back to Firmino. Brazil ends up scoring again. They end up tying the game. So it's 1-1 Brazil-Colombia. They go into stoppage time. They ended up playing 10 minutes of stoppage time before Brazil eventually scores again and ends up winning that match 2-1. to one. Colombia then, of course, has to wait to find out what's going to end up happening to them. They needed that game to move on. Uh, and now they have to play the, the waiting game because of that. So I'll start with you, Keenan. I know I don't know about you, but personally, I don't even know what to make of this. Yeah, so I think I think there's a duality to it because one, referees are a part of the play, um, just as much as any other official is a part of a play in any other sport that we see. Um, we've seen, you know, in hockey, for example, pucks try to be chipped in deep, hit a linesman, guy goes through on goal and scores. He's part of the play. It happens. But I think the difference here in soccer is that we have seen in the past officials get involved in a buildup that leads to a goal and that be play be blowed dead because of the situation. And especially now in a, an era where VAR is such a heavy influence on the game that's played where officials have the ability to go and look back and say, hey, some, something didn't happen right and we're going to make amends for that. I think that's probably Colombia's biggest gripe. That's why their soccer federation is calling for Pitana's uh, expulsion or, you know, stepping down. But I also think the other side of that coin is Pitana is not only an accomplished referee, he uh, officiated the World Cup final in 2018. So it's not like, you know, this is some random guy they pulled out of 
the second division of the Serbian league and said, Hey, you want to make some extra money this summer? Come call Copa America. He is an established referee within the game. And so using his discretion, he saw his intervention within the game there as saying, yes, the ball hit off me. And yes, it might've led to a goal, but he did not view himself as a direct catalyst for that goal. So I think you're kind of split between the two and saying, okay, well, was his intervention, would they, was his intervention deliberate and was his intervention the only causation for scoring? And from my perspective, at least, maybe I'm taking the unpopular opinion here. I say he's part of the field of play. Okay. It can go either way. If he's not doing anything besides his job, then standing in the middle of the pitch, officiating the game, that ball happens to hit off him. So, uh, but I think, you see uh, Casemiro scores in what the 90th minute plus 10. So call it a hundred minutes. I mean, Colombia, you're doing yourselves no favor after the game, after the goal is scored, standing around and allowing so much time to be added on that ultimately comes back to bite you. So I think, I mean, clearly at that point, morale for the Colombian side had hit the absolute floor and there wasn't an adequate response. We see after that goal is allowed, not Colombia and say, okay, let's go get one back. Let's go win this game. You see the Colombian team more or less mentally collapse. Brazil continues with flurries of attacks. They're stay pinned down within their, within their defending third. And eventually, you know, you knock on the door so many times, it's eventually going to open and Casemiro gets one. So yes, I understand both sides of the argument and I understand why some people are upset, but from a pure unbiased perspective, okay, I think that, if you do not allow, you know, you say, okay, the referee touched the ball. He, that has to be disallowed. What's the point of even having an official on the pitch? Just go straight to VAR. Get rid of everybody involved in the game and from an officiating level on the floor and just do everything remotely because it's a part of the game. It's not a hand of God. It's not, you know, it's not something that everyone could see being wrong. He was part of the field of play. And you know what, if you're Columbia, okay, just wall pass it off him the next time you have the ball. It's that simple. Keenan, the rules are, <laughs> are very, 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 it's, it's outlined. If the ball touches the referee and then gives them any sort of advantage to score, the, it, it's, a, it's, a stop, it's a stop play. And you have to understand something. If we're talking about the discretion of the ref, he basically gave Brazil a perfect one-time touchback and then one pass to the outside and then a cross in it as a goal. To me, especially you even mentioned with video review, how can you not look at this play and say that directly led to a goal? And if you stop the film, stop the film for a second and look at how many players on Columbia were looking at the ref once it hit him because they know the rules and they know that that whistle should have been blown, that nobody is now paying attention to Brazil, which then led to them being able to score the goal. I'm sorry, as a soccer player, that referee might as well wear a Brazil jersey because for me, it was pure, let's let Brazil win here, have a goal. I, I personally would have said, would you like a yellow jersey, sir? Because that's what you just said. You literally gave the perfect one-touch pass to Brazil who has scored so many goals and are the clear favorite in this cup, if they're in the final third already, you have to say that that's a clear clear way that they could score. Any ball for Brazil in that area of the field, they can score. Now, going to your second point with the second goal, I absolutely do agree with you. You cannot let your guard down. 
not with a minute left in the game, not to the whistles blown. They didn't help themselves there. That was, I want to say it was one, very poor defending. You had nobody on that front post protecting the goalie. But second, it was a beautiful goal. But you have to separate the goals here. That goal, the first one by Brazil, it should not have been included. Absolutely not. Disagree. And it's okay to disagree, but no way. The, the, the rules outline it. Dylan, if I may interject, and I'm not trying to turn this into, you know, uh, a presidential <laughs> debate where it's just back and forth for 45 minutes and our viewers are just like, can we get new hosts? But I think that, as you said, Danny, okay, it's played off the referee, right? It's still played one more time and then crossed in and then finished. How many, so, how many seconds did it take them to score after that? Pass it was like, it was like within play. what, maybe, maybe no more than 15, but that's not the no, point. No, no, it was make. like probably three seconds. It's not the point. Try, <laughs> it's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make here is, as you said, Columbia switched off. Why? The ball's still in play. That's number one. That's the first but point they I'm know trying the to make. Rules. Because okay, that, that's rules. like somebody kicking me in the face and me, of course I'm going to stop because it's a high kick. It's a dangerous play. You know, like I understand your point here. It's like play on, play on until you hear the whistle. But this is so obvious that it's like the ref didn't just deflect the ball. He literally passed the ball back. If to I had a nickel for every time that when I played soccer and I played high level that a blown off sides was given a goal, I would probably be able to go to college for free. But because the whistle's not blown, you hear it when you're like six playing AYSO or whatever youth league you play. You play until the game is done and, or until the whistle is blown. So from my perspective, would Columbia still have been that upset had that goal not gone in? Had it been across and Firmino flicks it wide? Would they still be upset at the referee? Could be. But I think because of Columbia's response in that instance of them shutting off and them becoming vulnerable, even though that run very easily could have been picked up had you continued playing, I think that's where the that's where the grievance truly lies with me, at least, is that because of the circumstances of that intervention, they felt more obliged to protest it versus if it was missed, it would have just continued on as such. But agree to disagree. I think your points are valid. I'm not trying to devolve this into some shouting match because I respect you. No, it's not a shouting match. I do have a question for you, though. How many players man the field? It's 11-11. Okay. Yes. So you're correct there. Well, Brazil had 12 players for their attack to lead them to that goal. And that goal should be completely disregarded and not count. That's my final thought. They had a 12th player, the referee. This podcast is back, baby. Oh, man. I I, just to quickly interject here. Of course, I, I did not play soccer at any higher level than like maybe seventh grade. But um, and I wasn't very good at that point either. But here's the thing. I, I'm going to have to, I don't think I'm as emphatic about it as, as Danny is, but I, I mostly agree with her here. I, I get the argument that he is part of the field of play, but this isn't mini golf. Like, the, like this is, there are rules to this game, and the mm-hmm. referees are supposed to stay out of the way. And look, I've, seen, I've, I've watched it be done in hockey too. It, it makes for strange situations, but foot, but but international football has the technology to rever, to reverse this decision after it happens. I, why wouldn't you do that? That that that's my that's my thinking. You know, in terms of that in terms of that last goal in the uh, in in stoppage time in the ten minutes of stoppage time, it's yeah, like like I said, it's a it was a beautiful goal. You, you can't argue with that. But at the end of the day. I agree it, it was rather silly and it's something that I think um, 
needs to be given account for in the future. But but you know we've already we've already taken up so much of your time today, folks. We just I very quickly want to do one thing uh, while we're talking about Copa America. You know uh, I'm I'm very interested in who you guys uh, would take to win this tournament because I know who I would take to win this tournament. I just mm-hmm. I I figured I'd I get your opinion. So uh, Dan, you first, and, and then Keenan. Who, who, who do you think's winning? Listen, the easy favorites, Brazil. Uh, they score a lot of goals, and it's not like they have a, a wish-wash defense. No, they actually do have a good defense, too. It's going to be Brazil, but after this whole shenanigans, I want to see Colombia somehow make it through, and I want to see what they can do. Yeah, agreeing with Danny, I think, as we talked with the Euro steps, so important when you're dealing with international football. And, I mean, Brazil's about as deep as they come. And I mean, they all play similar style, very possession heavy and also very individualistic, but can come together and score. And so I think I take Brazil too. I think it's kind of the unanimous decision. No disrespect to Messi and Argentina, but I think they're kind of done until they rebuild before uh, 2022's World Cup. So I take Brazil. And if, you know, they add a 12th player, as Danny's suggesting earlier, <laughs> then more power to them. <laughs> Gonna get you a Brazil jersey, maybe a referee jersey. Which one? You know what? Get get him a referee jersey that's instead of white and black, it's white and Brazil yellow. Yeah, and I'll get him the yellow one with the Brazil logo on it. There you go. Striped socks too, all for you, Keenan. I hope you have that by our next episode. But with all that out of the way, that concludes this episode of FUVFC, a production of WFUV Sports. On behalf of Keenan Troy and Danny Perry, my name is Dylan Balsamo. This has been a good show. We hope you join us next week. Take care. Stay safe.